0: it's a pleasure to be with you tonight and to uh, represent the Trinitarian Bible Society once again. Uh, Tonight I'd like to give a, a brief talk first of all on the passage that we have read and then after that share with you some updates of the ongoing work of the Trinitarian Bible Society. Well dear friends we have just read from the last 12 verses of Mark's Gospel in the authorised King James Version of the Bible. And there's nothing, I trust, in your Bible that would cause you to doubt that these verses that we have just read are the inspired and inerrant word of the living God. However, and lamentably, if you were to read from a modern English translation like the NIV, the New International Version, it is most likely that after verse 8 there will be a break, a space on the page. And a statement will be introduced like this. The most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16 verses 9 to 20. In some versions of the Bible, in English and other languages, you will find verses 9 to 20 either under a solid line or put in double brackets, completely distinguishing it from the rest of the chapter. At the bottom of the page, you're quite likely to find a footnote that will contain a statement like this from the ESV, the English Standard Version. It says, Some manuscripts end the book with verse 8. Others include verses 9 to 20 immediately after verse 8. At least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14, and they go on with other suggestions and ideas. Well, how is this going to impact? The reader of Mark chapter 16. Well, the poor reader is going to be left in a state of confusion and perplexity, not knowing what is the proper ending of Mark's gospel. If the reader then looks to a uh, modern evangelical leader for help, sadly, in many instances, they're not going to find much help at all. One very common and well-known Uh, preacher today is Mr. John MacArthur from California in America. He has printed many books. He is famous throughout the world. He's invited to many conferences, even reformed conferences throughout the world. And he's perhaps one of the most well-known speakers in the world today. But if uh, such a person or if uh, the reader of Mark 16 were to look to a preacher like Mr. MacArthur for guidance about this passage, this is the statement they will hear from him. He says, verses 9 to 20, is a text that has been added to Mark. He does not believe that Mark wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just him, but many evangelical preachers today do not believe in the inspiration of the last 12 verses of Mark's gospel. I use Mr. MacArthur as an example here tonight, and I'll make references to him because he is one who has been very vocal, denying the inspiration of these last 12 verses. Mr. MacArthur goes on to say about these last 12 verses of Mark. He says, what have we got here? We've got a patchwork collage that some early folks felt needed to be thrown together together. All of which is scriptural, with the exception of the kind of bizarre stuff about signs, in an attempt to help Mark get a better ending. He goes on and says, frankly, I think it's a bad ending. We have all that information. It's all kind of disjointed. He says that men, uninspired men, felt that the Holy Spirit had not given Mark a good ending, so they added an ending themselves. Well, modern Bibles and statements like this from so-called evangelical leaders cause confusion. And they actually go further. They cause unbelief in the inspired pages of Scripture. They cause men to doubt the authenticity of these last 12 verses of Mark's Gospel. And dear friends, the reason I speak about this tonight is because this is a very serious issue. These last 12 verses of Mark were either inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark either wrote them, moved by the Holy Spirit, or he didn't. It's a serious issue also, because it causes Bible readers to doubt the genuineness of this passage. Paul said all scriptures given by inspiration of God. Peter said holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What have we got here? We have an evangelical leader and many evangelical leaders telling us, that this is not inspired, and it shouldn't be in your Bible. Many Bible translations like to put the onus on the reader and leave it up to the reader to decide if they're genuine or not. And that's not how it should work. You're unlikely to hear sermons from this passage in in many churches that do not use the authorised version because it is considered a disputed passage. It's deeply concerning how many preachers, theologians, and ordinary Christians not only deny the inspiration of these last 12 (coughs) verses, but actually line up to attack it. Well, I believe passionately that this passage is inspired by God, and it should be part of our Bibles, and I uh, would like to leave some arguments with you here tonight. I'd like to begin by refuting the arguments against this passage. And there's several arguments that men bring against these last 12 verses. Very common arguments, not just by John MacArthur, but by many in that camp. The first argument from the NIV is that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. Some of the earliest manuscripts, well that, that invites a question, doesn't it? How many? How many of the earliest manuscripts support Mark ending at verse 8? Well, the answer is two. Two, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. The great majority of the manuscripts, the great weight of evidence that we have, supports the long ending of Mark, the last 12 verses being part of your Bible. A 19th century scholar examined 20 ancient Uncial manuscripts and about 600 cursives, and he found only these two, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, at variance with the received text. Now, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, they belong to a group of manuscripts known as the Alexandrian manuscripts, traced back to Alexandria. There's others in that family as well. Codex Bizet, known as Codex D, which was about 50 years after them, and others in that family, they're often in agreement with Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and other things, but they part company with them there. They have the last 12 verses of Mark's Gospel. It's clearly obvious that Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus err greatly in leaving this passage out, when a vast multitude of witnesses contain it. Codex Vaticanus stops at the end of verse 8, but then the copyist did something very strange. Something that he had never done in any other part of his manuscript. Normally he would just continue the next book of the Bible on straight after the last one. But after Mark chapter 16 verse 8, he left a gap. A gap big enough to fill in the last 12 verses. It's as if he knew they should have been there. The New Testament was translated at a very early period. Translation work didn't start with the British and Foreign Bible Society or the Trinitarian Bible Society. The earliest Bibles were translated from uh, the very first century. Um, They were translated into the Syriac, the Latin, the Gothic, the Egyptian, and other languages as well. And these translations preceded Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, and it will not surprise you to learn that those early translations contained... The last twelve verses of Mark's gospel. The second argument that they bring: they say that the notes affirming this passage are missing in other manuscripts. The critics who reject this passage, they tell us that many ancient manuscripts contain a note stating that Mark 16 verses 9 to 20 was missing from many other copies. Well, this is not true. Very simply, scholars have been found to quote from their predecessors. Without checking their accuracy. Somebody uh, made a lie. And other people quoted that lie. And it has been requoted down through the centuries. The third argument against this passage. They say early church fathers rejected the last 12 verses of Mark's Gospel. John MacArthur says in the 4th century. For example two of the fathers Eusebius and Jerome. Wrote that almost all Greek manuscripts of the New Testament end at verse 8. Well, as we examined the early church fathers, this is found not to be the case. References are found in the writings of many church fathers. They may be loosely quoted, but they still testify to the existence and acceptance of the last 12 verses. There's at least 15 church fathers who quote from the last 12 verses. Papias in AD 100, Justin Martyr in AD 151, he quotes the last verse, within 50 years of the death of the last apostles. Irenaeus quotes and comments in verse 19 in AD 180. Hippolytus quotes verses 17 and 18 uh, from AD 190 to 227. And we could go on. Uh, There's over 15 references that I have found from the early church fathers quoting the last 12 verses of Mark's gospel before Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus were copied. The fourth argument they make, they say there's an awkward transition between verses 8 and 9. John MacArthur, he says the transition from verse 8 to 9 is awkward. He says that word now necessitates continuity with the preceding narrative. However, what follows does not continue the story of the woman. He says there's no transition. It's abrupt. It's a bizarre change. He should be continuing the story of the woman based on that word now. But well, Mr. MacArthur is wrong. On his assumption that this word now necessitates continuity. That word now does not mean that the narrative needs to continue. In Mark chapter 1 verse 14 we have a prime example. In verse 13 Christ is in the wilderness being tempted. But verse 14 begins now after that John was put in prison. So in chapter 1 in verse 14... John uses that word now and he doesn't continue the narrative. No, he starts a new narrative. One of the notable traits of Mark is that he frequently moves quickly from one event to another. If anything, that pattern continues in chapter 16. The truth is that many of the critics see an awkward transition from verses 8 to 9. Because they want to see an awkward transition. And if you want to believe something hard enough, you'll find a reason to believe it. The next um, argument against this passage, uh, the critics say the style is different in the last 12 verses from the rest of Mark. They say that the characteristic features of Mark's style and vocabulary are missing. But dear friends, you can't uh, judge a writer based upon such a small sample of his work. If you look at the opening verses of John's gospel or the opening verses of Luke's gospel, you will notice that they're markedly different from the rest of their Gospels. But we don't question the authenticity of those passages, do we? In verses 10, uh, 12, and 15, the Greek word Eustai" uh, occurs three times uh, from verses 9 to 20, went, went, go, but it's not found anywhere else in Mark. Therefore, the critics tell us because he's used this uh, word three times, it can't have been written by Mark. But Mark actually uses compound forms of this verb 24 times in the rest of the gospel. So the use of this word in these three verses should be regarded as proof of their genuineness. Another example is the use of the word early in verse 9. Mark uses this Greek word six times, much more frequently than uh, Matthew or John, and Luke never uses it. The phrase hardness of heart in verse 14 is never used by Luke or John. Matthew only uses it once and Mark uses it twice. John MacArthur then says the vocabulary is not consistent with Mark. It doesn't read like Mark. There's 18 words here that are never used elsewhere by Mark. He says the structure is very different from the familiar structure of Mark's writing. He says the title Lord Jesus is used here in verse 19, but it's never used anywhere else by Mark. Well, in verses 19 and 20, Mark uses the phrase, the Lord, which he doesn't use elsewhere. But Mark also refers to the Saviour as Jesus Christ only one time as well, in chapter 1, verse 1. And the same can be said of Matthew and John. They only use certain names of the Saviour on one occasion, or one title of the Saviour. But that doesn't mean that we doubt their genuineness, because they contain a unique expression. In verse 19, Mark uses the phrase was received up. Now this Greek verb we are told occurs nowhere else in the Gospels. But Mark had a very wide vocabulary. He used 74 verbs that are found nowhere else in the Gospels. And this is one of them. But in any case, thinking about it logically, when else would Mark have had the opportunity to use that phrase was received up? Except at the ascension of Christ. He couldn't have used it at any other time. There's many times when the apostles used a word or phrase one time, but that doesn't mean we reject that portion of scripture just because they used one word or phrase differently. And then there's the accusation that there are strange themes that are found in this passage. This is what Mr. MacArthur says. He says, we have strange themes, the theme of not believing, the theme of gospel proclamation. They don't exist anywhere in Mark. They seem out of bounds for the, subject that, the subjects that occupy him. And then you have thrown in the signs. They don't appear in any of the four gospels. Well, Mr. MacArthur thinks it's strange that Mark mentions the disciples not believing Mary Magdalene. He thinks it's strange that Christ rebuked their unbelief and warned of the dangers of unbelief. Well, why is that strange? Is the Holy Spirit not allowed to move Mark to record these events? Just because they're exclusive to Mark does not invalidate them. It does not mean that they are uninspired. There are many events which are unique to the other gospel writers, but that doesn't nullify their place in the canon of Scripture. Think of the account of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You'll not read of that anywhere else in Scripture. Think of the Savior washing the disciples' feet. That is unique to John. Think of the restoration of Peter uh, by the fire of coal. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest I me. You'll not read of that anywhere else. It's unique to John. All of the Gospel writers have something that is uniquely recorded and exclusively by them. Well, why can these pieces in the end of Mark not be exclusive to Mark? It's a nonsensical argument. Many critics also take issue with the exclusive signs in Mark uh, 16, 17, and 18 as evidence that they're not inspired. But Scripture actually testifies that these are genuine signs. The Saviour says in uh, verse 17, They shall cast out devils. Well, that's not a strange sign, that actually happened. In Acts 16, 18, Paul healed the woman possessed with the powers of divination. Verse 17, um, they shall speak with new tongues. That happened. Acts 2, verse 4, on the day of Pentecost. Verse 18, they shall take up serpents. Again, that happened. Acts 28, verse 3, Paul was bitten by a snake as he gathered sticks, but no harm came to him. They shall lay hands on the sick. Again, that happened. Acts 28, verse 8, verse 8, Paul laid hands on the father of Publius. These things all happened. So why are they strange whenever you just read into Acts and you see that these things were fulfilled? Quite often, many times over. The only one that could be considered strange is where the Lord says, if they drink any deadly thing. But this was not an encouragement to drink poison. But the apostles are comforted to be told by the Lord, if they were poisoned by enemies, their life would be spared. Now, this isn't strange because the Lord Jesus said something remarkably similar whenever he sent the 70 out to preach. In Luke ten nineteen, he said, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpient, serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So, dear friends, what the Saviour is recorded as saying in Mark 16 is remarkably similar to what he has previously said so it's not strange if anything it's very familiar now while there's no references to the disciples drinking any deadly thing in scripture there are records from church history that something like this did happen Uh, the early church father Papias reports that barnabas drank a poisonous drink and it did him no harm so there are not strange things there are very familiar things a couple of additional arguments to support this passage if mark ends at verse 8 it means that mark is the only gospel writer to record no resurrection appearance of christ it mentions the empty tomb dear friends the empty tomb is not a resurrection appearance of christ it's an empty tomb In Matthew 28 verses 12 to 15, we read that the Jewish leaders paid the Roman soldiers to lie and say the disciples stole the body of Christ. If Mark finished at verse 8 with the empty tomb, it would complement the lie of the Jewish leaders. John MacArthur and others have a peculiar interpretation of why the ending of verse 8 is fitting. This is what he says. The women are convinced of the resurrection by the empty tomb and by the angelic announcement. They're gripped by the wondrous reality of the resurrection. They're speechless. And oh, by the way, so is Mark. I like that. Verse it says, they said nothing to anybody. And that was good enough for Mark. He didn't either. He just shut it down. Mr. MacArthur goes on to say, you have an empty tomb. You have the wonder of the eyewitnesses. What else do you need? Well, very simply, you need a resurrection appearance of Christ. Mark was the first to record his gospel, the first to send it out. And the message going out of an empty tomb would not convince many people. You would need a resurrection appearance. There's many empty tombs in the world, but that doesn't mean that all people who had been placed in them initially have been resurrected. The Apostle Paul Whenever he wrote in uh, nearly all of his epistles. He majored on the resurrection being essential. Mark could not have wrote a a, a gospel without a resurrection appearance. Furthermore in verses 6 and 7. The angel instructs the women that the risen Christ will appear in Galilee. And the angel says they will see him. So this prophecy of the angel it demands fulfillment. If Mark ends at verse 8. We're left wondering, has the prophecy of the angel been fulfilled or not? Even many people who um, perhaps even don't read the authorised version, they say it doesn't make sense that it would end at verse 8. It's a very abrupt and and strange ending. Just to finish uh, at that point, even Dr. James White, who agrees with John MacArthur, that the passage ends at verse 8, he says... That finishing at verse 8 is a strange ending. Now one 20th century commentator Richard Lensky. Who is a very strong advocate of Vaticanus and Alexandrius. And he favours them uh, very often over all the other manuscripts. This is what he says. It is untenable to have Mark stop at verse 8. But it is not untenable that after he completed his gospel. abbreviated copy should have been published. He said it's untenable. That Mark could have finished at verse eight, but it's not untenable, that other copies could have been made that accidentally or purposefully left off the last ending of Mark. Well, dear friends, this matters a great deal, because it is a denial of inspired scripture. Deuteronomy four verse two says ye shall not add unto the words which I command you, neither shall ye diminish out from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Which I command you. We have either got an addition to the word of God, a corruption that has come in, or we have those today who are taking away from the word of God. Revelation 22 verses 18 and 19 warns that if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Dear friends, we have to counter uh, things like this, because if this practice of questioning and doubting the inspired word is not stopped, it will continue until the Bible is left in ruins. There are those today who are making efforts to get Scripture printed without the last 12 verses of Mark's Gospel ending at verse 8. And they wouldn't be the first to do this. The 1952 Revised Standard Version printed Mark's Gospel ending at verse 8. That is the way they printed it. Now thankfully there was a bit of an uproar from the evangelical community. And in later editions they put the last 12 verses in. But sadly today it seems that within uh, many in the evangelical community the movement is to get Bibles printed without the last 12 verses. But what will be the consequences for the church if this practice continues unabated? Well a growing number of preachers are already denying the inspiration of these verses and refusing to preach them. But they won't stop here. They'll also go after John chapter 8 and the story of the woman taken in adultery. They already print Bibles today without verses such as Acts 8.37 and Matthew 18.11. And there's many other verses missing from many modern Bible translations as well. The whole um, goal of Satan is to attack the word. The Roman Catholic Church would delight nothing more than Protestants to argue amongst themselves about the Bible and to deny, to deny and doubt its inspiration and inerrancy. Dear friend, the psalmist David says the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. God did not give the word for it to be lost, for it to be corrupted, for it to be polluted, for it to be lost in transmission down through the centuries. We sang in Psalm 12 earlier that the words of the Lord are pure words. Then the psalmist says, Thou shalt preserve them, O Lord, from this generation and forever. Well, God has preserved his word and he has preserved it very simply in the Hebrew Masoretic of the Old Testament and the Greek textus receptus of the New Testament. And we should ever thank God the preservation of his word that is what our westminster forefathers wrote off in chapter 1 verse 8 of the confession they said the old testament in hebrew the new testament in greek being immediately inspired by god and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical that is what god has done with the hebrew and the greek he's kept it pure in all ages and in our english authorized version We have a faithful and reliable translation. We believe it is still the most faithful and reliable translation in the English today because it is translated from the inspired and inerrant word. Well, may the Lord bless this meditation to us here this evening. I'd like to move on now and share with you a report of the work of the Trinitarian Bible Society. The Society. It's now in its 190th year and we give thanks to God for his hand upon us down through these years that he has continued uh, to uphold the work. We look uh, down uh, through church history and we see many organisations and even churches and denominations that have come and gone in that time. Well, we are indebted to God for his uh, faithfulness to us and it is our prayer that we will continue to be faithful to God and to his word, and that we will stand for scripture in these dark and evil days. There's five core activities of the society that we're involved in. Translation, distribution, publishing, upholding, and promoting. Just to say a few things about each of those. First of all, translation. Why do we translate the Bible into foreign languages? Why do we go to all the effort to find translators, to train them, And to diligently have them spend years um, translating the Bible. Well we do this dear friend. So that we can put the word of God in the hands of sinners in their own mother tongue. So that they can read about the Lord Jesus Christ. So they can read about the way of salvation. So that they can be translated from darkness to light. By the power of God's spirit accompanying the word. Presently, we have projects uh, ongoing in 66 different languages. This is a a big jump from last year when we had around 45. Now, some of these are only investigative works at the moment. Uh, We are uh, working with uh, potential translators to investigate the possibility of doing translation work. But we give thanks to God that he has answered prayer in providing these men who have come forward to give themselves to the work of translation. In the last two years uh, we give thanks to god for the number of new projects that have come off the printing press we've had four new bibles the nepali the shona the simte the Thadu. we've had four new testaments uh, the amharic the russian the thaddu and the turkish we've had four new gospels the bemba the ukrainian the Bakat, and the french and we've also had the chinese gospels with romans and hebrews printed as well so we give thanks to god that in the last two years we have seen um, over well 17 different projects come to be printed. and This is the Lord's doing and we give thanks to him. The next two years are also going to be very busy years as well. Uh, we hope to have four new Bibles, the Chichewa, the Spanish, the, Bi- the Vipai and the Zal. We hope to have six New Testaments, the Chinese, the Danjio, the Delic, Hebrew, the French, the Collegian and the Com and six Gospels of John as well. So again, we're, we're, we're indebted to God that there's going to be another 16 projects printed over the next 24 months. Now, uh, these aren't uh, projects that just happen overnight. Um, on average, it takes about 15 years from start to finish for a whole Bible to be translated. This isn't something that we can um, be uh, careless about Uh, Thinking back to the Reformation, um, whenever um, John Wycliffe was translating from Jerome's Vulgate, Jerome had mistranslated a word from the original Greek. A very important word. It was the word repentance. And he translated that word, do penance. So for years, people thought uh, that they had to do penance, not realising that the actual word was repentance. And John Wycliffe, when he translated the first English Bible from the Latin Vulgate, he didn't know any better. He translated what Jerome had, and he translated do penance. Now, there's a world of difference between doing penance and repentance, which is why, dear friends, we have to be so diligent and so careful. We're not handling the words of man, we're handling the word of God, and we have to get it right. So, as well as translation, we're also engaged in distribution. And we distribute scripture in two ways. We sell Bibles to those who can afford to buy them. We believe that if people can afford to pay for their Bible, they should do so. And uh, in 2020, we sold 5.5 million scriptural items, some of those printed under licence. But for those who can't afford, and there's a great number of them in the world, we give out free scripture. In parts of Africa, Bibles are so expensive they would set you back the equivalent of one month's salary. I was told the story recently of a couple in Africa and they wanted a copy of God's word. And they travelled for three days to a city in Africa to try and find a Bible to buy it. They spent a couple of days searching the city and they couldn't find anywhere that would sell them or even give them a Bible. And they returned home empty-handed over a week spent trying to find and buy a bible we have i'm sure even in our own homes a multitude of bibles shelves full of them but that's not the case in many parts of the world we get letters emails phone calls all the time from people asking us to help them find a copy of god's scripture or if we can provide one free of charge for them well in 2020 we were able to give away 2.1 million scriptural That's Bibles, New Testaments, Gospels, Scripture calendars, and other scriptural items as well. Dear friends, we would value your prayers that God would bless the distribution of his word. That's over 7.5 million items that went out in 2020. And it's not just an impressive number if we think about it on a personal and individual level. That's over 7.5 million items that went out to 7.5 million souls. In 109 countries throughout the world. Please pray that this would be the seed that falls on good ground. And that we will see a bountiful harvest in the years to come. My manager made the remark recently. He says, uh, he says it seems strange the more we give away the more demands we get for scripture. And that really is encouraging to hear that there's a hunger for the word of God in various parts of the world. We translate, we distribute, we also publish the Holy Scriptures throughout the world in many different languages. We have well over 30 different translations in print at the moment, with many more to come uh, in the incoming years. We also uphold the Bible as the inspired and inerrant Word of God. It seems strange, it's not something we should have to do, it's really the job of the Church um, to defend the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. But sadly there's a great attack upon these fundamental doctrines today it's sad to see that many who are even engaged in the work of bible translation do not believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture well we will only work with those who are converted born again of the holy spirit and those who believe in the inspiration and inerrancy and preservation of scripture we uphold these fundamental doctrines as well as the doctrine of the trinity uh, it's a doctrine that we were uh, came into being over we separated from the british and foreign bible society in 1831 because they allowed unitarians into their organization so we seek to uphold the great doctrine of the trinity and then we promote bible translations which are accurate and trustworthy that conform to the hebrew masoretic old testament and the Textus receptus of the new testament Some of these have been prepared by us, some have been prepared by other people, but if they're faithful to the Word of God, then we are happy to promote them. Now, a couple of updates of interest to you. First of all, the Chinese. We have prepared the Chinese uh, Gospels and Romans and Hebrews. They were published online in September 2021. And we have approved the printing of the New Testament our translators are just doing a final uh, thorough proofread of the text after which it will be typeset and printed and we hope to have the chinese new testament available in january next year so please pray for this there's uh, a huge number of uh, speakers of this chinese language just shy of a billion please pray that as these bibles are put into hand or this new testament is put into chinese speaking hands That the Lord will bless his word to the salvation of many souls. Another project to mention is the Spanish. We finished the New Testament a number of years ago. And we hope to have the Old Testament finished and printed by the end of 2024. Now there's been a huge demand for the Spanish scriptures. Particularly in Latin America. And we give thanks to God for the huge hunger uh, for his word down there. We partnered with a Dutch Bible Society, GBS, and they funded 100,000 Spanish New Testaments to be printed and given out, primarily in Latin America. And we rejoice to hear the reports that have come in of the, um, of the New Testament being distributed down there. One country down there to leave with you for your prayers. They've been distributed in over 21 countries, but one country to leave with you is the country of Venezuela. It's a very difficult country to get items into. It's very expensive to post into Venezuela. There's sanctions imposed upon it from the rest of the world, and you're not guaranteed that your parcel, after paying all that postage, will actually get there. So there's a group of pastors, and they arrange for the Spanish New Testaments to go to a city in neighbouring Colombia, and from there, a group of young people carry the New Testaments across the border into Venezuela. They pay a very small customs fee, and then they're posted inside that country. So far, these young people have carried over 5,000 New Testaments into Venezuela. So please pray for the Spanish uh, scriptures that are distributed in Latin America, that the Lord will bless his word there in those countries, and that we will see a bountiful harvest in the days to come well dear friends there's much more that i could share with you and i'm going to end here tonight and um, save some for next week and i'll i'll give further updates uh, if the lord will but we'll uh, stand for prayer uh, at this time (coughs) our heavenly father we do thank thee tonight for thy goodness to us that we have been born in a land that has the Holy Scriptures. We rejoice, Father, that we have had the light of thy word from our infancy, that we have been brought along to the meeting house and taught the word of God. We thank thee that without fear of persecution we're able to read it to our children night by night in the home. But, Lord, it's not enough for us merely to possess the word. We need thy spirit to apply the word and to make it effectual to our souls and to the souls of our children. And to the souls of our community. So bless thy word Lord. As it is distributed amongst the nations. As the New Testaments and Gospels are put into the hands of strangers. We pray that it would be that seed that falls in the good ground. That brings a glorious harvest to thee. Lord we know that to stop us from being puffed up with pride and to think that it's our doing. Thou dost hide uh, so often uh, the fruit of this from us. But Lord, we pray uh, that as we spread the scriptures, that thou would um, be pleased to use it for the conversion of sinners and for the glory of thy holy name. So Father, we pray that thou will continue with us as we worship thee. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll continue to sing to God's praise from Psalm 138. Psalm 138, (coughs) verses 1 to 5. Thee will I praise with all my heart. I will sing praise to thee before the gods and worship will reward thy sanctuary. I'll praise thy name even for thy truth and kindness of thy love. For Thy thy word has magnified all thy great name above. And down to the end of verse 5, Psalm 138, Thee will I praise with all my heart. Thee will I praise with all my heart. don't know if you've seen on the way in but i have the uh, tbs book table with me there's a number of free magazines and articles i would recommend this one how the holy bible came to be uh, they're all free take as many as you would like and share with your friends and family there's also a number of items to purchase uh, some psalters and bibles with psalms uh, coloring in books and other items as well uh, i'll go to the door to shake hands but the money tends there uh, run an honesty policy so i'll, I'll trust you to um uh, uh work away if not i'll come back in and and help you out with that but please take uh, time to look if there's anything you'd like but you don't have money with you tonight uh, please take the item and you can uh, sh- uh, give me the money next thursday night um, at the meeting but let's stand for the benediction for the grace of our lord jesus christ and the love of god and the communion of the holy ghost be with you all amen amen